0: There are two things that a tenant shouldn't do. Number one is just complain verbally. I mean, we'll have tenants who said, "I went down to the office and I've told them 15 times, like, no, 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 it has to be in writing. You have to have documented proof. So verbal communications count for very little. Even if the landlord says only do it verbally, you know, it's like, no, 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 because a lot of times. The property manager, the landlord doesn't want the record of it. So that's number one. The other thing is some people will say, well, I just stopped paying my rent. That's very dangerous because now the landlord can bring a failure to pay rent action against the tenant. And the tenant is in a much, much, much weaker position. Good
1: morning and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. As always, any discussions that take place on this program do not involve providing specific legal advice for individual legal situations. It's imperative if you need legal help that you marshal the facts and speak to an attorney so you can get advice that is specific to your case. Further, any of the opinions that are offered today are not those of Howard County Community College, its faculty, staff, students, or employees. And with that, I'd like to welcome our guests today, Jane Santoni and Chelsea Ortega of the firm Santoni Voci and Ortega in Lutherville, Timonium, Maryland. Welcome. Hi Bob. Great to have you here.
0: So how did you two meet? So Chelsea was my law clerk several years back. At the time, Peter Holland was teaching a course at University of Maryland on consumer protection law. And he said that Chelsea was the best student he'd ever had and that we would be fools not to hire her.
1: Wow, that's an impressive credential, Chelsea.
0: Yes. Yes, certainly. <laughs> and the rest so did is
2: you, history.
1: Did you have a particular interest in consumer things while you were in law school?
2: Yeah. So Peter Holland's clinic was particularly geared towards representing people who are being sued by debt buyers. And it was really one of the few clinics at University of Maryland that was where the student would get experience in court. And so that was particularly interesting for me. I knew I wanted to be a trial attorney based on some of the work I'd done before law school and during law school. And so I just love the work representing consumers, the little guy against you know big corporate interests. And so I had an interest in history experience, both in personal injury and in consumer matters. And there's not many many of us out there and that's exactly what Jane's firm at the time was doing. And so it was a really great fit.
1: A uh, caveat, my wife is an alum of the University of Maryland Law School and I believe both of you are, correct? That's correct. So I asked this question of many people and I get different generational answers. So I'll start with Jane. When did you know you wanted to be a lawyer and why?
0: I wanted to be a lawyer from the time I was a kid. I never really thought about any other profession and I can't pinpoint exactly why, except that it just really ticks me off when people are taken advantage of. And to be able to fight to stop that is very rewarding. It's exciting and rewarding. How about you, Chelsea?
2: Definitely when I was in you know, middle school, high school, I knew I wanted to do something to help people and I excelled at writing and reading. And so I didn't wanna be a, a therapist or a doctor and being a lawyer, I can use kind of my strengths every day and also make a difference with people. And so that's why I chose that route.
1: Sounds like a felicitous combination for both of you.
2: Yep, certainly. So Jane,
1: could you tell me generally how your firm came to be and what it is that you did and what it is you do now?
0: Well, this current firm is a split off from a former firm that I was involved in. Matt and Chelsea worked with us at the time. Chelsea had just been made partner and Matt was of counsel. And so when that firm split for numerous reasons back in 2016, we formed this firm. And what we do primarily is tenants rights right now. And part of the reason is because tenants in Maryland, thankfully have a right to a jury trial when they feel aggrieved. And so we do a lot of that type of work. We also, and that has to do with the property conditions, that has to do with illegal charges, illegal lockouts, any area where a tenant is either being treated illegally, or in a condition that is uh, dangerous to them, we try to help. And then we also do the other consumer protection areas too, like debt collection abuses, credit reporting problems, and personal injury. So anywhere where we feel like another human is harmed, either financially or physically, we try to come in and help. We've
1: recurrently had guests on who are interested in helping tenants as a disadvantaged group. And a number of people from the Maryland State Bar Association, Rena Shah, and some people from Maryland Volunteer Lawyer Service and that kind of thing. And it seems like tenant abuses are incredibly widespread. Could you speak to that, Chelsea?
2: Sure. And I think the reason is because of the imbalance of power, right? So you've got a tenant And obviously that is a range of sophistication and age. You know, we deal specifically with some elderly tenants and they can particularly be vulnerable, but even sophisticated, well-educated people, there's such an imbalance of power. You've got a property management company, usually who has literally the keys to your house and can come in, you know, if they wanted to anytime and charge you any fee because you're going to have to pay it if you want to. Not be rendered homeless. And so we find that it is a particularly vulnerable population to abuse, to unfair practices, because the corporate landlords in particular hold all the power. And if the tenant is what they deem difficult, you know, maybe they're complaining because they have rodents or roaches or, you know, their heat doesn't work, then the property manager or property management company will often deem them difficult. And then we'll just try to get rid of them or evict them. And so they're particularly, you know, just susceptible to all of these abuses. And so that's, I think, why there's so much focus on by different nonprofits, as well as by our firm to help tenants to overcome some of this abuse or to at least find a remedy when it happens. So Jane, I would imagine a lot of the people that you're serving are not
1: people of great economic means. Is that accurate?
0: That is accurate. So how do they pay for your services? Well, one of the things that I was interested in when I first started looking into consumer law about 20 years ago is the fee shifting statutes. So there are laws, both state and federal, that allow the at-fault corporation or merchant to have to pay the attorney's fees for the, the tenant or the uh, the consumer. And that's how we, for the most part, are allowed to do these cases. In addition, in many of them, there's a personal injury component. So the tenant may be entitled to non-economic damages for that. Although even if they're not physically harmed, the Consumer Protection Act allows for recovery for emotional harm as well. So there are ways to do it, but it's true, Bob, most of the people we represent can't come close to paying our bills.
1: I can understand that. Do you find that there are recurrent culprits in terms of landlords that seem to have a greater prevalence of these cases?
0: Absolutely. So it's like with anything. I mean, I used to see it with the car dealers when I did a lot of car fraud cases. There were names that wouldn't come across my desk ever. And there were names that I was on a first name basis with their attorneys. So yeah, I think there are culprits. And I think that the more, as Chelsea talked about, the more imbalance of power there is, the more you get corporate landlords as opposed to the mom-and-pop landlords, which are becoming fewer and fewer and fewer, it becomes a situation where the bottom line profit is all that matters. And so the more money that these big corporate landlords can save, the better for their shareholders, which means things don't get corrected, which means people are living in subhuman conditions.
1: So Chelsea, is the bulk of this work done in district court or circuit court or federal court, or does it not have a particular locus?
2: Now most of our cases are filed. We file them in state circuit court because we, you know, these cases can be substantial cases. We had a verdict where in Baltimore city circuit court a couple of years ago, where the clients was a family and they lived with rats for nine months. And then when they complained to the housing authority, the landlord evicted them. So we had both like with Jane's talking about fee shifting and, you know, personal injury type claims. And the jury awarded the tenants non-economic damages of around $160,000, where they had actual damages of $9,000. And then we were awarded our attorney's fees on top of that. So the total judgment was for around $250,000. So these are not district court cases. These are significant cases in circuit court with a jury. And the jury you know, typically will find that the tenants were really harmed by what happened to them by their landlords. How do you find clients? Find you? So it's a combination of you know uh, other attorneys, nonprofit organizations like MVLS, the Pro Bono Resource Center, Legal Aid, CASA. There's a whole host of uh, organizations that we partner with and work with. Those are the primary sources, I would say, as well as advertising. We do some direct advertising if we know of an apartment complex where there are terrible issues and we know there are a lot of tenants there with those issues and you know, we'll send out marketing letters to them as well. Interesting. Does any of this take you into federal court? Sometimes. We do class action work as well. So there are cases where there's federal statutes where we will file in federal court, such as the Federal Debt Collection Practices Act, as well as the, Jane was just in on a uh, fair credit report. It wasn't fair credit. It was, what was the ultimate statute that you used? It was a credit reporting issue, but it was a different statute. I
0: I think that was a credit
2: repair act. That's what it was. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Well, in that case, the landlord was charging every tenant per month for allegedly improving their credit. And the tenants really didn't. (laughs) And the tenants. How noble of them. (laughs) And the tenants really didn't have a say as to whether or not they. Could pay this five dollars or not. So there's a whole set of statutes that address what a credit repair organization is and how it has to operate. So we alleged that that was illegal.
1: So when we say illegal, do we mean civilly illegal or criminally illegal,
0: or both? Well, I can't address the criminal aspect of the case, but definitely civilly illegal. So we we operate only in the civil statutes.
1: So is there any sort of cross-pollination between your firm and the government agencies that look at this stuff? I mean, do you make them aware of abuses that you see that you think they should be looking into? And do they similarly say, hey, there's abuses going on here. Somebody needs to do something about this, please.
0: We have worked with different agencies. We've also worked with agencies like the JAG Corps. You know, if they see a military member being abused, They'll contact us under certain conditions. So we work as much as possible. And I mean, everybody has a role. I think what our goal is, is to stop the behavior. And many organizations that do phenomenal work essentially, they just want to stop, you know, just leave this particular client alone and go away. And so our view is that for every one client who, Essentially, they say, okay, we'll let them walk away without paying the extra rent or whatever. There are probably a 1,000 who are still being treated illegally. So what our firm tries to do is take an affirmative stance. You know, to we file the affirmative claim, which a lot of times the government agencies don't do. Sometimes they do to great effect, but, but not always. And so because we are private attorneys and we can operate under the statutes, we will bring the large affirmative claims, we'll bring the class actions to say, no, our client's not just going to walk away. You're going to have to pay our client for what you did to them.
1: So just on a hypothetical basis, Chelsea, if I am a student at Howard County Community College and I have particularly abysmal lodgings,
2: what is it I should do? So you can reach out and try to find an attorney and uh, to help you. You can I, I'd say the biggest thing is to document the issues, to make okay. sure that you are sending written communications to the landlord or property manager that you then have a copy of. You are taking pictures if it's, you know, an issue with rodents, roaches, bed bugs, water intrusion, mold. Those are the common issues that we see. You're taking pictures of that, that, those issues. Um, those are the biggest things. You can also look and see if there is a local code, which there is in Howard County, that there's a, actually a, an organization that helps tenants in Howard County. So you can make a complaint to the Howard County. I don't know if it's Landlord Tenant Commission or there's some name there and have somebody come in and view the conditions and cite the landlord or the property manager. And that, that would also create a record that there is a problem with the condition of the property. So the more that you can do- document, record, keep those instances where you're contacting the property manager trying to get the issues resolved, the better it is for you in the future if you are going to bring a case or just to try to get the issues repaired. There's also the option of a rent escrow, which is where the the tenant would go into district court and tell the court there are these problems that are life, health, and safety violations. I want the court to do X, Y, and Z. Maybe it's I want the court to order them to fix it, or I want my rent reduced, or I want my rent back, or I lost possessions. Those are all the options that would be available to someone who's facing some situation like that. So how many intrepid souls do you find who
1: do things like that on their own without your assistance?
2: It's a range. I mean, there are people who certainly come to us and they've you know, called housing authority in and, and they've cited them. They've, they have filed a rent escrow case. There are tenants who go kind of above and beyond. And those are the ones that we see often are deemed difficult. And so there's kind of repercussions for that when they do speak up and they do stand up for themselves. Then they're faced with, well, now they're saying I breached the lease because I, you know, was one person I heard they were feeding wild cats. And so they said they had breached the lease because they were feeding feral cats outside. So we see all kinds of, you know, problems that the tenant allegedly causes in response to making complaints. But there are protections in place as well for tenants who make complaints, retaliatory eviction type claims and, and things like that which I mentioned earlier. So, you know, obviously a tenant, there are lots of options available to the tenants, but a lot of times they will need to find an attorney if they are getting this kind of retaliatory behavior. If their complaints are just being ignored repeatedly, that is sort of a last option resort for those tenants.
0: There are two things that a tenant shouldn't do. Number one is just complain verbally i mean we'll have tenants who said i went down to the office and i've told them 15 times like no 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 it has to be in writing you have to have documented proof so verbal communications count for very little even if the landlord says only do it verbally you know it's like no 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 because a lot of times the property manager the landlord doesn't want the record of it so that's number one the other thing is some people will say well i just stopped paying my rent That's very dangerous because now the landlord can bring a failure to pay rent action against the tenant and the tenant is in a much, much, much weaker position. And these failure to pay rent actions are brought, especially by the corporate landlords, on a regular basis. Before COVID, there were 670,000 filed in Maryland per year. Um, They literally bring them into the courthouses in big carts because there's so many. That's a whole nother story about the problems with affordable housing and how easy it is for the landlords to file these types of actions. But for a tenant who's complaining, do not just stop paying your rent. It's very dangerous. I was
1: going to ask, because it's been a recurrent thing. As I said, I've tried to have pretty much everybody who's running a pro bono organization in Maryland on in the last few months. And there has been an interest in trying to come up with a mechanism sort of like criminal law, Gideon versus Wainwright, of having an attorney available for every tenant in a landlord-tenant action. And I wondered what each of you, and it doesn't matter which order, would each of you think of that, would that help your practice? Would it help tenants? Are there downsides to it? What's your feelings about that? Why don't don't you go first, Jane?
0: Well, I think it's critical. I mean, Chelsea and I have both been in the landlord-tenant courts, and the difference between having an attorney and not maybe the difference between having a roof over your head or not. So I think when it comes to something as important as a roof over your head, it's absolutely necessary. And my view is with our practice, unfortunately, Bob, there are so many people who need our help that if a problem is solved before it gets to us, that's just fine. You know, so it won't hurt us. It'll help the people we're trying to help. I gather you feel similarly, Chelsea. Yes, that's, that's
2: as well. And I will say there's already programs where, you know, Baltimore City, for example, there are multiple nonprofit organizations that are there in rent court every day. And there, it is a big difference that you see in that rent court versus other counties where that assistance is not available. And so it is something that is needed because it's, we view it as a human right, you know, housing is a human right. And especially when there's this sense of power it's especially important that you have the availability of counsel because otherwise the tenant could be ripped off and not even know You know that in certain jurisdictions, the landlord's required to be licensed before they can bring an action. And um, they'll just misrepresent that they, they'll just write down some numbers on the form and then an attorney will know to like go and where can they look that up and then see like, no, that's not accurate. And we'll be able to raise all those issues to the judge, hopefully, in a way that will then offer some protections to the tenants. There's
1: some statistical information out of the Access to Justice Commission. And we were due to have Rena back on in January, February, but the, the legislature actually took priority over everyday law, which is shocking. But anyway, she was providing a statistical information that you know the availability of concrete defenses to tenants in actions is an astronomically high percentage of cases and yet so few have lawyers that they're not availed of, of those things, and it just seems sinful.
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: I would be remiss if I didn't cover two other things that I had talked to Jane a little bit when we first scheduled this show, and I know that you were involved in doing litigation over bad auto sales and rental practices that has been somewhat reduced or if not eliminated owing to the existence of arbitration clauses. I wonder if you could give us a brief Round up because our audience are people who are going to buy, rent, lease cars and need to be cognizant of this.
0: Sure. So uh, when I started doing consumer protection work in 2002, I was really drawn to the car fraud cases because it just It just made me so mad, you know, how people were ripped off and placed in dangerous cars, like they're placed in dangerous homes, you know. And for years, I could say to a car dealer uh, or his lawyer, you're going to have to explain to a jury why you did this to my client. And they would either settle the case or they'd have to explain it to a jury and I'd win. Because it was usually so rotten. What started happening, I don't know, maybe about five years in or so, is arbitration clauses started getting into all contracts. And these clauses basically say that you waive your right to a jury trial. And you waive your right to bring a class action. So you don't get the trial anymore. They usually say you waive your right to a trial, period, but especially a jury trial. And you can't band together in a class action. And so... I could no longer say you're going to have to explain to a jury because they didn't have to explain to a jury. And they would have to explain to some arbitrator who overwhelmingly ruled against me and every other individual who goes against a corporation. I mean, the statistics are staggering. It's something like 95% of all consumers lose in arbitration. And so there were a series of what we consider devastating Supreme Court decisions. It's going to come to that. You know, we're thinking like Dred Scott bad yeah. Supreme Court decisions that essentially blessed these arbitrations. And so it's almost impossible to get into court now if you have a contract with one of these clauses. Essentially, the only way it's going to be corrected is with a congressional fix. There's something called the FAIR Act, which did pass the House. It's now before the Senate. It's probably going to need 60 votes to pass. But, you know, a jury trial is a constitutional right under the Seventh Amendment of the the Constitution in a civil case. So I often wonder how if you could just put something in a contract that waives your Second Amendment right to bear arms, whether people would have the same reaction, but we need a congressional fix for this or else it's really stripped a lot of people of justice.
1: I really wonder if there is a public appetite for such clauses. I mean, in other words, you know, whatever your political stance, left or right, these things take away fundamental constitutional rights under the federal constitution and the Maryland constitution. That I think, you know, you may be buying a pickup truck in Tennessee, but you're just as screwed if they sell you one that was in a flood in New Orleans as if you're buying a Tesla in New York.
2: Yeah, I mean, the biggest problem is that people don't understand what they are. They don't understand what they're signing. I can't tell you the number of times people have called to our office and will say, I'm sorry, we can't represent you because there's an arbitration clause. And they'll say, I didn't sign an arbitration clause. I don't know. You know, I didn't sign that. And we'll say, here it is. You know, this is where you signed it. And so the the industries have done a great job of sneaking these into contracts, not explaining them. If we do meet people that say, I, you know, I asked the dealer, what is this? They'll say to them things like, oh, don't worry about that. That just saves everybody time and money. Don't worry about that. That's not a big deal. But overwhelmingly, like Jane said, the studies show that the opposite is true, that You have to pay the the consumer or the business has to pay massive amounts of fees to these arbitration companies and arbitrator, which also removes the kind of the, the fairness that we have in the justice system, right? Where, yes, we have a filing fee, but the filing fees are much higher in arbitration in these arbitration filing companies than they are in at least Maryland state courts. And the lack of diversity among the arbitrators. There's been a recent study that shows that overwhelmingly... The arbitrators are white males, um, and that's completely different than what you would find, say, in a Baltimore City jury, and where people are entitled to a jury of their peers. And so overwhelmingly, the statistics say that minorities do much worse in arbitration than they do in court. So already, there's the odds are stacked against consumers. And then you add in these considerations of money and lack of diversity and the you have even worse results for people who are vulnerable to abuse and minorities. And so it's really a terrible change in the law that has occurred. And unless Congress acts, it's not going to change because businesses are getting off scot-free. Why would they choose to change their contracts?
1: I try and scratch them out of my contracts. Sometimes I get away with it. Sometimes I don't because I'm buying the car for whatever it is. The consideration is the same as between us. I get a car, you get money. You don't get to add something in that strips away my constitutional rights. And it's surprising how often people kind of, the, the salesman's so hot to sell me the car, they're oblivious to the implications of what I'm doing. But I have a feeling not everyone is going to get away with that.
0: Well, yeah, I'll address that, Bob, because you know if you can get away with it, great my experience has been, you know, that cell phone you want, that credit card you're using, the moon bounce at the kid's birthday party. We had to file an ar- sign an arbitration clause for that. You know, most places you can't, you cannot just cross it out. You just can't.
1: I'm not surprised. I think, you know, when you're a lawyer, people sometimes are a little more intimidated when you're dealing with them, especially if you're a genial one like me who blithely scratches things out. So, I would be remiss, Jane, I'm sorry, if if I didn't mention that you will be speaking at the Bar Summit. Chelsea, are you speaking too, or is it just Jane? Oh, excellent. Okay. I
2: think our sessions are at the same time, so you have to pick between us which one you're going to go with. That's (laughs)
1: unjust. I have the same thing. A dear friend of mine, CeCe Pays, who does lots of mediation, is doing one at the same time I'm doing one on podcasts. So, we have talked about trying to sort of combine and do ours together. And apparently there's a dim view of that in some quarters. So we'll see how that goes. But can you each give me, and we only have about two or three minutes left. Chelsea, why don't you give me a quick one on yours and then Jane, you're on yours. And then we'll let Chris have her afternoon.
2: Sure. So mine is about managing clients and particularly personal injury clients and what that looks like. So, you know, it'll be an overview of really you need to manage the client from the beginning of the case until the end. What kind of steps you can take to do that, what techniques you can take to make sure that the client and the attorney have a good relationship, because that is a significant part of the case, right? You need to have that trust there between you and the client, that rapport, so that when you are telling them sometimes very difficult things for the client to hear, you know, maybe you're expecting to get this amount and now you're going to get this amount for whatever reason, then the client is going to listen to you and follow your advice. And so we certainly view that as a particularly important aspect of the representation, the relationship between the attorney and the client and the the firm and the client, all the way from, you know, the first person they meet when they walk in to the, to the attorney that they're going to ultimately have in their case. And so the course is really designed to talk about all of those things. And and also a, a little bit on now that we do have this remote aspect, a lot of times, how do you overcome that because it is different when you meet someone kind of on zoom versus in person and the lack of kind of in-person things, how what how does that affect the relationship as well? And what can you do to overcome that? I like it. And Jane?
0: So my course, I'm I'm so excited about both of these seminars. Mine is how to balance a legal career with a contented life. And I feel like after 35 years of practice, very, very, very grateful, was able to practice in an area I love without sacrificing a marriage or a relationship with my children or some fun hobbies. And after 35 years, you know, being on the other end, I would just like to share some of that because I think as lawyers, many of us are tortured souls. There's a lot of depression, there's a lot of addiction. And so this is the sort of, introduce how to navigate life while navigating the legal career and um, hopefully letting people know that they have options they may not think they have that you don't need to be stuck
1: how do I attend both your seminars Then this seems unjust
0: I don't know
2: I guess we could talk as well to them about potentially bumping seeing well I
1: regret to say we have run out of time I very much enjoyed speaking with you both I hope you'd each consider coming back sometime
2: Sure. Thank you so much for having us, Bob.
1: It's been a pleasure. This has been Everyday Law. Farewell.
0: Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.